working in Charlie Trotter's kitchen, molecular gastronomy, and high cuisine from a metal lunchbox. This week, we're in Chicago. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the show where we discover the unique dishes and drinks from cities around the world. And this week, we're in one of the world's great foodie cities, Chicago. And my guest is Lynn Bramer. Lynn's a radio personality at WXRT in Chicago. Lynn's been there for over 35 years, and Lynn's also quite the foodie. So we talk about Chicago's famous high-end restaurants like Charlie Trotter's and GT Fish and Oyster, Chicago chefs like Omar Cantu and Giuseppe Tentori. And Lynn tells a great story about a dish featuring helium at what might be Chicago's best restaurant, Alinea. Plus, we talk a little wine, and since it's Chicago, we make room for a little bit of pizza, too. But before we get to Lynn, there's something you might notice with this particular interview. I wasn't able to get the best recording of my voice. It won't do anything to diminish your enjoyment of the show, but I thought I should mention it before we start our talk with Lynn Bramer. Destination Eat Drink. Lynn Bramer, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's a pleasure to have you. Folks know you from your decades in radio in Chicago at uh, WXRT, but folks may not know you're also a big-time foodie. So when I talk to foodies, the thing I always like to know is, how did you first get interested in cuisine other than, you know, McDonald's and uh, pizza and stuff like that? You know, for me, it started with a mother who was a bit of a Francophile and her uh, special dish for guests, you know, dinner parties was Julia Child's Bœuf Bourguignon. So I knew how to say Bœuf Bourguignon (laughs) at an early age. And it was something that I loved. But I finally remember a traditional uh, rotation of my, my mother's meals. Um, salmon curry, which was a simple butter flour cheese sauce with canned salmon and a couple tablespoons of curry over rice. And that was it. The only thing she made that I could not eat, uh, and I I think a lot of people share this experience, was uh, tuna noodle casserole. (laughs) And And that was the tuna noodle casserole of the late 50s and early 60s, which featured canned tuna and uh, Campbell's cream of mushroom soup is the sauce and the mushrooms in the cream of mushroom had the the mouthfeel of pencil erasers. And I had a very healthy appetite, so healthy an appetite that I was not forced to eat the tuna noodle casserole, which happened very often on a Tuesday. Now I still have my mother's, uh, joy of cooking. You know, that's so interesting because my mom also had that early edition of the joy of cooking, which, which I have as well. She was a big Julia Child disciple, but she also made that same tuna casserole uh, <laughs> with the cream of mushroom soup. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s. And I still have the, um, the iron, uh, not skillet, the iron uh, casserole pan that she used to use. for. Wow. You know what? I, I think I have our parental uh, 
uh, not casserole pan, but the, the cast iron skillet, which yeah. I use for everything. Although I'm, I'm loath to use it for wine sauces, even though a, a, a securely seasoned pan is supposed to be able to handle the acidity of a wine sauce. I just don't do it. I, I don't believe them. Uh, you mentioned Julia Child, one of my favorite cookbooks right here, The Way to Cook. Oh, nice. Good. And uh, from my hippie days, I recently made something out of this because I do love to cook. Oh, I recognize that. Moosewood. <laughs> the cauliflower cheese pie out of this is with the potato crust is something I'm, I manage very well. Um, I was never much of a fast food person. And that is keeping in mind that I did not do much fine dining as a kid. I mean, uh, our idea of fine dining was a stop at the Howard Johnson's on our way from Queens to the eastern end of Long Island, where <laughs> I'd get um, the fried clam strips with a black and white ice cream soda. And I actually remember my first fried clam strips. Fourth grade, I had gone to the optometrist to get my first pair of glasses. So uh, that I had... Uh, mixed feelings that day because on the one hand I was wearing glasses which in fourth grade nobody wanted to do on the other hand I said to myself do all people see this way this clarity I see the leaves <laughs> on the tree but my mother to kind of soften the blow of glasses took me to Howard Johnson's and ordered fried clams and a hot dog because I wanted to try to fry clams and she got a hot dog thinking that we would switch right away that I would try the fried clams. you wouldn't like know. the fried clams yeah but I wouldn't let her near the fried clams. Um, <laughs> that's one of my earliest food memories. Um, and it, it brings me all the way to uh, the Ipswich clam house that I went to two years ago at a wedding that was like a pilgrimage for me for the real fried clams with the bellies, and the tartar sauce on a buttered roll. Um, I have great memories and feelings for food. And I guess the first question you asked, how, how did I get to love food beyond um, the Howard Johnson's and the fast food world. I, I think a lot of it had to do with, with being in the music business at a halcyon time when, um, you know, I moved to Chicago in 84. I'd lived in Albany. Albany, New York was not a culinary hotspot at the time, although I did love uh, a natural foods restaurant, a natural foods restaurant called the uh, ribbon grass restaurant where my girlfriend and future wife worked. But when I moved to Chicago in 1984, it was as the music director at XRT. And part of my job is to take phone calls from all the promotion people from record companies and uh, a typical call. Play this be, record, play that record, Lynn. Yeah, we have this coming out. We have uh, a new album from an unknown band called the Nails. Uh, you might want to check out. They have a song called Home of the Brave. Maybe you guys will play. But part of that job also was as an ombudsman between me and my boss, the program director, Norm Weiner. And the people would call in a little bit of a panic saying, the vice president of promotion is coming from L.A. And uh, can you think of a nice place to go for dinner? And I would say, yes, I can. <laughs> and uh, we cut a swath through the fine dining establishments of Chicago, Illinois, in the mid to late 80s, like nobody's business, because we were nothing if uh, not forthcoming when somebody wanted to take us out to dinner. So that included a couple dinners at Le Francais, which was a French restaurant in Wheeling, Illinois, that was uh, the brainchild of Jean Bonchet. In fact, the current 
major culinary awards given out in Chicago or named after him, the Jean Bonchet Awards. And that was fancy French country cooking in a very cozy atmosphere. And that introduced me to seared foie gras with a fruit compote and other delicacies that I, I had not really experienced prior to that. It was the beginning of um, the craze for tapas in Chicago in the mid-80s. Uh, late 80s, a restaurant called Cafe Baba Riba opened, and that was a favorite. Actually, record companies, I remember uh, having dinner there with, uh, among others, Katie Lang, Brian mm. Ferry. Cool. Um, it, was, it was a place to take guests from out of town. Uh, and that was kind of in the early days of, of the um, culinary ascendancy of Chicago. Now, of course, you can't talk about Chicago culinary world without Charlie Trotter and his restaurant, Charlie Trotter's. Sure, probably the number one name. If, if people know one name of high cuisine in Chicago, they know Charlie Trotter. Charlie Trotter's, when it was around, was known for Charlie's uh, idiosyncrasies. He was, you know, he was, he ruled with an iron fist and people have written articles about that, but he really changed the landscape of the Chicago culinary world and the United States culinary world. In fact, I once bid on uh, spend a night cooking in Charlie Trotter's kitchen at a charity function and I won the bid and I, I got to work in the kitchen. And by working in the kitchen, I mean, they gave me some uh, mutant Brussels sprouts to trim off in a corner. And I noticed that those Brussels sprouts were not used in any dish during the course of the evening. <laughs> they just sat there. But what was interesting was, well, there are so, so many interesting things about working in that kitchen. Number one, Charlie Trotter was not there. Uh, he, you know, he had already become a celebrity and he was traveling the world very often and was not always in the kitchen. And I have a very vivid memory of the person running the kitchen that night. He seemed totally in control. He seemed brilliant. He was directing everybody. There was a lot going on. You know, I thought there would be hysteria and cleavers flying through the air and shouting and yelling, but it was very quiet, amazingly quiet. Everybody knew their role. Everybody knew what they were doing. Everybody had a position. And the guy who was near the grill, who was organizing everything was a guy named Giuseppe Tentori, who went on to join the Boca restaurant group and opened, um, was the second chef at the namesake restaurant, Boca, and then went on to open his own restaurants, GT Fish and Oyster and GT Prime, which is an upscale uh, steakhouse. And I've never forgotten that. That was, you know, 30 years ago in that Charlie Trotter's Kitchen the other thing in that kitchen was the person that took my jacket and kind of showed me where to hang my jacket and showed me around the kitchen was a guy named Omar Cantu, who went on to become a one okay. Michelin chef in Chicago and was the godfather of molecular gastronomy. Yeah, and he did all that crazy molecular gastronomy. He had the centrifuges. I've, I've read articles about him. Uh, he sadly passed a few years ago, but he was kind of a mad scientist kind of a guy. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he took me down to his laboratory at his restaurant and uh, showed me a laboratory where he, I think he was trying to grow black truffles in, a, in his restaurant. I, I don't think 
I don't think anybody's been ever able to do that. People do grow mushrooms. Um, but one of the most fascinating dinners I ever had was at his restaurant, Omar Cantu's restaurant. You know how you have an amuse-bouche, they bring out a small plate and a, a mouthful. At his restaurant, instead of having an amuse-bouche, he brought out, uh, they, they brought out a platter and there was a th 12 thumbprints and it was the 12 flavors of the meals, the 12 courses you're gonna have. And it was just like a quarter of a spoonful 12 times and it gave you a complete tour of what was what was to come and and that was just fascinating to me i'd like to go back because you said something very interesting to me lynn and other chefs that i've talked to have said this as well i think in our new culture of celebrity chefs being married to television people now think that a kitchen is the kind of place where you've got a guy like gordon ramsay who's screaming and ranting at people calling them names, throwing things, putting things in the garbage. When in actuality, you talk to a lot of these chefs and what they'll tell you is, no, I want silence. There needs to be quiet here. We are doing serious work. I've, I've been in a few kitchens and, and the ones that work best are not ones where there's chaos and shouting and yelling. The other thing about that Charlie Trotter's kitchen was it, it was a veritable who's who of Chicago chefs to come. I think at the same time, um, Omar told me, you know who was in that kitchen that night? I said, no, I, I remember Giuseppe. He goes, well, there was a guy named Grant Ackett, who went on to open the three Michelin star Alinea. Uh, there was Beverly Kim that has, has the one Michelin star parachute and another newer restaurant in Chicago. Matthias Murgis, a legend in Chicago cuisine. Uh, it was all these people coming up through the ranks, working in the kitchen at the same time it was kind of like, like the 1927 Yankees if you caught them in 1921. It was right, all right. these giants in Chicago cuisine all in Charlie Trotter's kitchen at the same time. I think that was that must have been the late 90s. If you were to use another sporting analogy, it might be like a coaching tree. Like you've got this, this famous coach and all of these other people came from that same tree. They worked with them at some other point. I, I, I knew about Omar and a couple others of those folks from Charlie Trotters, but I didn't know about all these other folks. That's amazing. As you say, it's a who's who of Chicago high cuisine. You know what? There was a guy I knew that did a jazz show to just to continue the, uh, uh, the, the metaphors. There was a guy uh, who did a jazz show. I knew that, that he called it miles children and it <laughs> featured people played with miles Davis and the people who played with Miles Davis make up, uh, again, a who's who of uh, post-1950s jazz. And that's kind of like what Charlie Trotter's Kitchen was. Now, Grant Ackett's, before he went on to Alinea, there was a great restaurant. This is before Michelin started awarding stars in Chicago in Evanston. Uh, and it was called Trio. And it's where Rick Tremonto, Gail Gand, and Henry Adanye opened a restaurant. Rick Tremonto went on to fame and fortune, number of restaurants. He has uh, Revolution in New Orleans now, highly acclaimed. He had True in Chicago, which was a very beloved upscale gourmet restaurant. And Gail Gand, one of the great pastry chefs of the last 30 years, they were all a trio. And when Rick Tremonto and Gail Gand left, 
one of the succeeding chefs was a very young guy named Grant, Grant Ackett's. And the first time I ever ate his food was at the restaurant Trio in Evanston, Illinois. And one dish I remember was, uh, it was a sight smell experience where it was, I think it was lobster poached in butter in a small dish, but it was floating um, in another dish. And what they did was they poured fresh rosemary leaves in the other dish mm. and then boiling hot water over the, uh, the rosemary leaves. So none of that, n- none of the herbs or spice were actually in the dish. They were subsumed. They were absorbed as you smelled the dish, as the water hit the rosemary and whatever else was in there. And that combined with the experience of, of tasting the lobster without tasting the rosemary directly. And I just remember thinking how cool that was. That's fantastic. It reminds me um, about a decade ago when we were in Croatia in Istria and they used to take uh, rosemary, tiny rosemary branches and they would dip the leaves into a pot of honey and use that as the stirrer for the tea in the morning. So you would get the oh. honey and then it would also infuse the rosemary into the tea. And I just thought it was the most brilliant idea that I'd ever seen in my life. Well, I, I've seen people take uh, fresh rose, <clears throat> excuse me, now I'm getting hungry, take uh, fresh rosemary and um, use it as a, as a brush brush butter on something right, or right, to brush a, a sauce, same idea. Uh, and I've seen Sarah Stegner, who was the chef at um, downtown. She was at the, the Ritz Carlton. She ran the, the uh, dining room there and she once did a cooking demo uh, that I participated in where she pointed out, and probably the people listening to you all know this, but, you put in sprigs of thyme and you're sauteing onions and stuff and you just pull the sprigs out. You've already gotten the flavor out of them. You don't need the thyme in there. Um, and it's just another way of flavoring. One of my favorite, speaking of Grant Ackett's, we were talking about Grant. He, you know, went on to, to open one of the most famous restaurants in Chicago history, Alinea, and also uh, the sister restaurant next, which changes its menu every three or four months, which is a fascinating concept all its own. At Alinea, I went with a friend of mine named Mark who was writing an article. So it was on the magazine's dime. Always a good thing when you're, when you're dining on someone else's dime. Especially if you're dining it at Alinea. Yes. <laughs> Chicago's but, three Michelin star restaurant. Right. And what, what happened was there's a dish where there's an edible helium balloon you get. And they, they fill up this edible balloon with helium and you're supposed to suck the helium in. <laughs> and here I am at Alinea and we're doing a wine pairing. So I'm enjoying myself and I inhale the helium and you know what it does to your voice. So I was seized with the inspiration to start singing. We represent the lollipop <laughs> guild. The loll- <laughs> and I could see. Uh, some very formally dressed people at an adjoining <laughs> table a look over and a woman mouthing the words, oh my God, what is he doing? <laughs> oh, come, we, on, 
And I mean, you know, loosen up. You're inhaling helium. It's it's a it's a stroke I, of genius, you know. I, I think the whole idea was to uh, enjoy the whimsy and, and go with it wherever it took you. Of course, yes. I'm I'm interested in anything else you can remember about Alinea because this is a place not many people get to go to. You know, whether you can afford it, whether you can get to Chicago for whatever reason. So, any other memories about Alinea? Because this is just a world famous restaurant. Well, one of the things I remember is they, uh, and and a restaurant like Alinea will do this. They brought us uh, a dish that was not on the menu, and it was essentially a fried whole fish that you sort of ate with your fingers and it was one of the best things on the entire menu it was it was mind-blowing and uh, i'll always remember that coming out just as a surprise um i wish i still had the the menu to that i i have saved a number of menus from various restaurants alinea uh next which i mentioned before which was the brainchild of uh, Nick Konis, who is one of the uh, owners of Alinea and Grant Ackett's. And that's the restaurant where every four months, they're a completely different restaurant. They started out, I think, being Escoffier-era uh, French restaurant. They've been modern Chinese. They did something called Childhood, where one of the mm-hmm. courses came in a vintage metal lunchbox you know, like a Fred Flintstone lunchbox, right, and right. and you made your your own milkshake by stirring things together, and it, there was a highly evolved peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh, next, also um, did something called the Hunt, so it was everything you might expect at the Hunt, and that would mean venison and quail or partridge, and they had a an antique duck press they showed us in the kitchen and a duck press is essentially like a hydraulic compression thing that gets all the juices out of whatever you've cooked and you use those juices to make uh, a pan sauce or something. So between those two restaurants, those are amazing. Now don't forget there was another three Michelin star restaurant called Grace, Curtis Duffy's restaurant. Curtis Duffy, also somebody who was in Charlie Trotter's kitchen the night that I was there as a young man. And Curtis Duffy has just opened during the pandemic, a new restaurant called Ever, which has aspirations to be another Michelin three-star restaurant. And they did flora and fauna menus so that you could have a flora. It was pretty much all vegetarian and fauna, which was with more traditional proteins and actually, they, they let us sort of mix and match. I went with my wife, and she eats fish, but she doesn't eat uh, red meat. And that was an amazing room and a stunning restaurant. And they had a falling out with some of their partners, and they had to close. But they're reborn mm. as ever. And right now, you can get some of the most highly uh, sought-after Michelin star dishes for takeout at ever. I mean, cool. uh, the people are not dining in, I don't think at this point. So you can, they have a vegetarian stew and a lamb stew that I'm just dying to try. But you know, my, my love for food began modestly, you know, in New York city with uh, thin crust pizza, walking to Russell Sage junior high school and far Hills, Queens, you had to walk past no fewer than four pizza places where you could get a slice for 20 cents. 
Right, right. And that, that love for New York pizza has followed me to Chicago. And I love Chicago pizza as well, which, as you know, outside of Chicago is often maligned. But you get a, you get a stuffed Pequod pizza or Burt's Place pizza or uh, Lou Malnati's uh, stuffed pizza with spinach and jardinera, which is a Chicago uh, spicy relish all its own. And that's some serious living. When I moved from Chicagoland to the East Coast, I did hear a lot about, uh, you know, the deficiencies of Chicago-style pizza. And, you know, I always thought, yeah, Chicago-style pizza, I love it. But I always, we didn't eat it that often when I was growing up in Chicagoland. We had more the what's called the tavern-style pizza. Now, I yeah. didn't know it was the tavern-style pizza when I was a kid. It was just the pizza we got that was cut into squares instead of slices. But that was the kind of the every Friday night type of pizza. Luma, you know, the deep dish pizza, that was special occasion pizza. Yeah, a lot of people say that uh, Chicagoans have deep dish pizza when the relatives come to visit. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that may be partially true. I'll tell you what, I had an Aurelio's uh, tavern-style thin crust pizza last Friday with uh, bacon and jardinera and extra cheese. It, mm. was, it was truly wonderful. It's nothing like it. So um, before we let you go, oh, there was one thing I wanted to ask you, Lynn. You mentioned the uh, wine pairing. I think you were mentioning it at Alinea. I can't remember. Yeah. But my my question to you is, um, do you have any favorite places to go that are really have extraordinary wine lists or are specifically wine bars in Chicago? Well, one of my favorite places, and I, I, I can't talk about food in Chicago without neglecting this place. They have a wonderful wine list. It's an Italian restaurant. And one of the most attractive features of it, it has absolutely the most beautiful outdoor patio in the city of Chicago with trees and, and bushes. You feel like you're not in a city at all. And that's Piccolo Sogno. And uh, that's the collaboration between Tony Priolo and his partner, Ciro Longobarto. And they have an amazing Italian wine list, uh, Barolos and Barbarescos. And, you know, the, uh, the server always steers me towards the, 2011 Barbarescos from Italy when I feel like I can afford them. Uh, right. and, and I became interested in Italian wine back at a time when Italian wine was, was, you know, affordable, uh, because you didn't want to buy French wine because that seemed right. out of your budget. And of course, as we all know, Italian wine has caught up rather nicely, uh, to other regions of the world in terms of, of pricing, but a bottle of, of aged Barolo and uh, pasta with truffles and uh, Parmesan Reggiano is about now as good as you're talking my language, Lynn. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, yeah, I'm talking about all these Michelin star restaurants. In one of the best meals I ever had was off a piazza in Italy in Siena near a church where we went in. There was a very friendly owner who talked to us, and I had Cacio di Pepe, which is just it's just pasta, pepper, a little bit of cheese. And the pasta was just done so perfectly. And, and the balance of the pepper and everything was so perfect. It, it's a meal I'll never forget. And it's just pasta and pepper and little else. I refer to Cacio e Pepe as a Jedi mind trick. Because, 
I've tried to make this before at home and I've watched several on television. I've read several recipes, different ways of doing it, of putting the starchy water in with the cheese to mix it up and make kind of a slurry. And every time it turns into a gloppy mess, the cheese breaks inevitably. And I have not been able to master it yet. I have my own way of kind of doing it without having to resort to this, but it's still not cacio e pepe. Feel like I got to be in Rome to have some uh, really well-made cacio e pepe because I well, can't do it. Well, one of the great losses in the last year in Chicago cuisine was Tony Montuano moving to Nashville to work at a boutique hotel and open uh, several restaurants there. But he, for many years, was the head chef at um, Spiaggia, one of the most acclaimed Italian restaurants in in the Midwest, and was also the restaurant that gave Sarah Grunenberg her start, who was on Top Chef and now owns uh, an Italian restaurant in Chicago. And also Joseph Flam, who went on to win Top Chef. So one of the things about the restaurant scene in Chicago that I find interesting is uh, restaurateurs, especially the Boca restaurant group, they focus their restaurants around a personality, around a chef with a name and a reputation, whether uh, they're up and coming or they're established you go to their restaurants, not for the name of the restaurant or the reputation of the restaurant. You go there because you know who's in the kitchen or you know who's running the kitchen. And I think that's really smart. And I think that's how some of the best known restaurants in Chicago have uh, thrived, at least before the pandemic, is chefs who've made a name for themselves through their creativity and their vision. And uh, that's why people seek them out. You know, the the phrase chef-driven restaurant gets thrown around so much these days. But this is this is actually chef-driven restaurants is what you're talking about right now, Lynn. I mean, these, yeah. are, these are the guys who are, you know, creating the menu, who are creating the food through their own vision. That's what chef-driven really means. Yeah. And uh, uh, one of the amazing things, I, I mentioned Boca, the flagship restaurant, the Boca Restaurant Group. They've gone through at least three chefs, and each one of them was spectacular in its own way. I mean, Lee Wolin, who worked in New York City and is now running uh, Boca, and I think another uh, Boca-related restaurant, uh, if anything, that restaurant's gotten better. Ah, fantastic. Well, uh, Lynn, before we let you go, um, folks can't see this because this is audio only. I can see you. And you're uh, sipping out of a Cubs 16-ounce uh, little pint glass there, uh, water, <laughs> or maybe vodka, I don't know. But um, my question to you is, how are the Cubs going to be this year? We're, we're looking at spring training in a few weeks. Uh, the Chicago Cubs, uh, and I, I hate to say this because it's really a non-answer for a, from a Chicago Cubs fan, is they are such a big question mark. They have some big salaries to deal with, some some players that are going to be free agents. So I think everybody's sort of waiting to see what happens with players like Chris Bryant and Javi Baez. Are they going to be put on the trading block because they need to start to rebuild again? Or are they going to hang on to some of the core? I know they're, they're already holding on to Anthony Rizzo. I, I don't see the, a World Series victory this year, but I can guarantee you one thing. As soon as they open the gates to Wrigley Field, I will be there at every possible moment. 
Yeah, that's great. Let's let's hope for that because I mean, going to see baseball and going to see concerts again for the last several months now, for the last almost year, it's been it's been tough. I've been I've been being a good boy, but man, I can I can smell it, I can feel it. I want to do it again as soon as possible. Let me tell you something. I have saved so much money not being able to go to restaurants, <laughs> and right. it makes me sad. I wish I had spent that that money going to restaurants. Uh, I mean, you're talking to the guy that for a long time held the record at Shaw's Crab House for most oysters consumed at a luncheon. Uh, I used to host the Shaw's Oyster Festival. Uh, They don't do it the same way. They used to do it in a huge tent with live music. Um, And I went there, I think the first year I was doing it, and they wanted me to try different oysters. So I had some Fanny Bays, and I had some Kumamoto, and... After a while, I said, how many different oysters have you brought? And they said, seven. I said, well, you're bringing a dozen oysters every time I try different oysters. I've had seven dozen oysters. (laughs) This has to stop. Uh, And for a long time, um, one of the uh, bartenders there who made a wonderful martini would tell me, Lynn, nobody has had 70 um, oysters at lunch ever since you did it. Uh, I think that record may have been broken, but I wasn't going for records. I just happened to love oysters. Right. From right. the Oyster Bar in Grand Central in, in New York to Hogs Island Oysters on the West Coast to the amazing oysters you can get in Chicago. You know, I was an East Coast seafood chauvinist until I realized that Chicago being uh, such a transportation hub can provide you with some mighty fine seafood and some mighty fine oysters. Lynn Bramer, pleasure to talk to you. So much fun talking about Chicago. Brings me back to my days living in Chicagoland. So thanks for being on the program, and go Cubs go. Go Cubs go. I And you know what? I'm such a diehard baseball fan that I have to be excited about the White Sox as well. Not until good. they play the Cubs, but the White Sox are going to be white hot this year. Okay, there you go. That's Chicago radio icon Lynn Bramer. And glad to hear a diehard Cubs fan give props to the Sox. Go to radiomisfits.com for links to Lynn's feature, Lynn's Bin, and radio station WXRT. That'll put a bow on this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you won't miss next week's show when we'll be hiking the Camino de Santiago and enjoy lots of great food along the trail. You can also check out my website, DestinationEatDrink.com. Lots of foodie fun there, including my blog, where I add regular stories each week. This week, it's a story about an espresso drink called the Flat White. It's interesting how we got that bevy to come about, and you can read about it at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and King of the Pod, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.